Welcome to the Epiphany Lutheran Church podcast. These messages, based on a biblical text, interpreting the hearer's situation, informed by Christian teaching, creatively proclaim the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth for forgiveness and new life starting now. Epiphany Lutheran Church is located in South City, St. Louis, Missouri. Our vision is to be a community that puts Jesus first, neighbors second, and ourselves third by gathering to be served by him so we can grow to love as he loves. Learn more at epiphany-stl.org. That's epiphany-stl.org. Years ago, in fact, it was on my vicarage, so that's 44 years ago, I went to the hospital to visit a dying woman. She said she was dying. And she did, about 30 years later. She had some mysterious stomach ailment that was bringing about the end of her days. Later, I went to her house and discovered Maalox, that liquid antacid. I didn't discover Maalox. I discovered cases and cases and cases and cases and cases and cases and cases of Maalox. It was everywhere. It was in the bathtub. It was in the oven. It was in the closets. It was, in, it was under the bed. It was in the bed. There was one room stacked so high with cases of Maalox, there was just a narrow pathway to walk through. I didn't know that when I went to see her in the hospital. She was dying. I was prepared for that. I had read Elizabeth Keebler Ross's book on death and dying, and I was familiar with the five stages of grief attendant to dying. Remember those? Think we can come up with them? I'll give you a hint. The acronym is DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So I figured she and I would have a conversation. I would be able to determine what stage of grief she was in, and then I would speak to that. And I was also well-schooled in a process for sharing faith called dialogue evangelism. So I thought I knew stuff, which meant I was dangerous. <laughs> So I walked into the room, and I walked up to, the, to, to her bedside, and I looked right down at her, and I said, Mrs., and I won't use her name, I said, are you dying? She said, I think so. I said, are you certain that you're going to go to heaven? She said, I hope so. I said, suppose you were to die right now and God were to stand before the gates of heaven and say to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? She said, I would tell God, I'm a charter member of St. Paul. I sing in the choir and I taught Sunday school. So here was this woman, and granted, I was probably a little direct and maybe discombobulated her a bit. 
a lifelong Lutheran, a Lutheran for life, who had heard the gospel over and over and over and over, who had knelt at a communion rail countless times, who knew page 5 and 15 from the 1941 hymnal by heart, who could even sing the Te Deum Laudamus. And her plan was to stand before God with a list of her credentials. It's no wonder when I asked if she was certain she was going to heaven, her response was a tepid, I hope so. So this guy came up to Jesus, and in the Gospel of Mark, he's called a man. In the parallel account in Luke, he's called a rich young ruler, which is how we'll refer to him. And did you notice his approach as we read the Gospel? Did you notice how he came up to Jesus? He ran up to Jesus, and then he knelt. And then he offered this greeting. He said, good teacher. And perhaps Jesus did not receive a more respectful greeting than that. So this man was sincere. This isn't one of the ones who was trying to test him or trick him. And then he asked this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Which to me is a perplexing question because do and inherit are in some ways mutually exclusive. When my folks died, I inherited a little. I didn't do anything. I was simply a child. And so the first thing Jesus did was he affirmed his identity. He said, good? Only God is good. Are you calling me God? And remember that the identity of Jesus is a recurring theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Who is this? Is this a prophet or is this the Son of God? And then Jesus continued, you know the commandments. And then he listed six, all of which have to do with human interaction. And the man said, I've done those. You can almost hear the disappointment. Something was missing. Like the woman in the hospital who could only hope. He had done the commandments, but he did not feel secure, certain, joyful, confident. I love that word, confident. The Latin is con, fides. Con means with, fides means faith. And this man wanted to know if there was something more he could do which would allow him to know he would, had gone over the top. That it was guaranteed. That he could at last feel he was okay. Well, there was. And Jesus, loving him, mentally underline that, would you? Loving him said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor. Oops. <laughs> That's when we discover the man was merely religious. He had kept the commandments. His heart wasn't in it. And where Jesus began by affirming his own identity, he then exposed the man's identity. He was a good man, but he was good for nothing. You remember the other place where Jesus talked about one thing? Remember that? Mary and Martha? And Mary chose 
the one thing needful. And Marta was banging her pots in the kitchen. Marta was a good woman. She wanted to be a good hostess. She wanted to provide Jesus a good time. She wanted to put on a good show. She wanted to give good food. She wanted to spread a good table. Good for nothing. You lack one thing, Jesus said to the man. And the man walked away sorrowful. The force of the Greek there means he was grieving. He was disappointed, but not disappointed enough to do what Jesus said. So he chose being good for nothing rather than surrender everything. Three times in this section of Mark, which I always think is the very core, the heart of Mark, this section begins at the end of chapter 8 and it rolls through to the end of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 8, there is this miracle healing of a blind man where Jesus healed a blind man and said to him, now tell me what you see. And the man said, well, I see people, but they're like trees walking. And Jesus touched him again. Then at the end of chapter 10, it's the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So this section is bracketed by two miracles that have to do with healing, or with, with sight. And three times in this section, Jesus said he was going to die. We call it a passion prediction. The Son of Man will be given into the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. In each case... Right after that passion prediction, Jesus said, unless we do the same, unless we take up our cross, unless we die to ourselves, unless we become servant of all, unless we surrender everything we cling to, if there's the tiniest thing in our lives that is not brought under the control of the Holy Spirit, if there is one area in our lives that prevents us, in which we refuse obedience, to the Lord of heaven and earth, we will always only walk away sorrowful or bang pots in the kitchen. Jesus brooks nothing that comes between him and us. And he will continually poke at that area where we are holding back. And he'll, bear, he'll bring holy pressure to bear on that area in our lives that's preventing us from fully following him. For Martha, it was the need to be seen as, as a good hostess at the expense of, expense of sitting at his feet. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth and the identity that wealth provides. For us, for us, could be any one of a number of things. Maybe for us, Maybe it is money and the need to have enough. That causes us to be so parsimonious. And we know we should give joyfully and sacrificially. But boy, we can sure point to circumstances that allow us to justify our refusal to give. Maybe it's religion. The insistence on tradition, doing things the right way, and being upright. 
at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were good people, and boy, do we give them grief, which I find incredibly hypocritical, because there's still a lot of that going around. Maybe it's appearance. We measure ourselves by a certain style. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's intellect. Maybe it's a certain way of life. And there, you know, there's nothing wrong with appearance or intellect or family or money as long as those things don't become means by which we measure ourselves that are good for nothing. Make no mistake. The call to discipleship is a radical call. Discipleship is far more radical than the discipleship of convenience and comfort that we like to exercise. And I love that word radical, you know. In the Latin, it's radix, which means at the root. Something radical is something at the root. A radical change is a change at the root. A cosmetic change is a change on the surface. The woman in the hospital said she was a believer at the root. She trusted in her good deeds. The rich young ruler was a good man at the root. He was greedy or fearful or prideful. See, some people have reduced Christianity to a moral code or a belief system. At its root, it's a love affair. And we follow a crucified Christ, which is neither convenient nor comfortable. So is there anything in us about which Jesus would say, you lack one thing? And remember, he spoke those words in love. We might be good people, but he does not want us to be good for nothing. Hmm? Is there something within us which prevents us from being so rooted in Jesus that the fruit of the Spirit explodes within us and we experience life as it was intended? Discipleship at its root means we surrender everything and stand before Jesus in utter simplicity. Which is why I always love the third verse of Rock of Ages, which is why I asked Anna if we could sing it a cappella today. Did you pay attention to the words? Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. I got nothing. I got no ticket. I got nothing to exchange here. I can't show you anything. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked. Yikes. Exposed. Vulnerable. All those blemishes. Come to thee for dress. Helpless. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. And then that next word, foul, which is not F-O-W-L, despite the fact we talk about flying. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die.
And you know what the great irony? When there's nothing in our hands that we bring, our hands are open to receive what he wants to give. A couple of minutes, we're going to come to the communion rail. We come by invitation. We come bringing nothing. We come bringing nothing. Okay? Nothing. Doesn't matter how long you've been a member of this parish. Doesn't matter how good you are. We come bringing nothing. I had a good friend who was of the Catholic persuasion. She probably still is, although I haven't spoken to her in years. And one time we were talking about communion, and I asked if within the Catholic tradition she had been taught to prepare before taking communion. The question completely undid her. And not for the reason you're thinking. Here was her response. We don't take communion. We receive it. And right away I got defensive and I wanted to say, well, it's just semantics. Uh-uh. There's a world of difference twixt those two words. And I, already, I had always said, take. Are you going to take communion today? I've since dumped that word. Take implies an imposition of my will. Receive is all gift. And we come forward, or we sit here, and we receive grace as it breaks through into our world in the forms of body and blood that come in with and under bread and wine. And then we do not walk sorrowfully away to go bang pots in the kitchen. We dance away. Joyous. And you know when that day comes finally at the end of life and God stands before the gates of heaven and says to us, why should I let you in? We don't have to give a list of our credentials. You know what we do? We lift high the cross to which we have been clinging and we say Jesus died and rose for me. That's the one thing needful. It's the only thing needed. And it's good for eternity. And so be it. Amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ our King. Amen.